Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Wise men from the east. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them whether Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may also come and worship him. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for doing the scripture reading this morning. Uh, one of the uh, good things about having regular people out gives us an opportunity to let others use some of their gifts and talents for the Lord. I want to say thank you to you as a church. Uh, last Sunday was a special surprise. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I, I honestly did not expect what you guys did. It was a privilege and an excitement for me that will be a memory for me. Uh, tomorrow I turn 45 years old. I used to say at 35 because uh, David said in the book of Psalms that man's days are numbered, three score and ten. That'd be 70 years. I used to say that 35 was halfway to dead. I'm now 45. Um, I'd prefer that 45 would be halfway to dead. Uh, and so we just <laughs> keep moving that number. Uh, it's, I, I, just, I do want to point out, I'm not the only one that has birthday around Christmas time. Uh, Gima had one this last week. I don't know, Gima, you're here somewhere. I saw you. Uh, Gima had a birthday earlier this week and uh, Lizzie's birthday today. And uh, Jacob Aburi was on the bass guitar this morning. Jacob is also celebrating his birthday tomorrow uh, with me. Uh, he's about five years ahead of me on the calendar. I just wanted to point that out. Uh, so he's beyond halfway, and I won't say the rest of that sentence. Uh, so thankful to have uh, all of you here together this morning. We'll be back in the book of Matthew chapter 2, and if you want to uh, see where we're headed, uh, you can drop a piece of paper into Hebrews chapter 2. I'll finish at Hebrews 2, uh, but we'll spend the majority of our time together in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Matthew uh, we saw last week he is a government official, a tax collector. He's writing this book uh, for a purpose, namely to show that Jesus is the King of the Jews. Uh, gave that lineage in chapter 1, and he's writing now for a Jewish audience a, from the perspective of a government official. He'd been a tax collector, considered a publican and a sinner by the community, son of Alphaeus. Uh, he was the one that was sitting there when Jesus walked by and just simply said, follow me. I know that many of us would prefer for God to work in our lives in big ways. 
perhaps some of you have had testimony or stories in your life where God has done something big in your life, and that big moment was what God used to shake up your life. I've heard some of your stories, some of your stories uh, similar, something like I was in a dinghy headed from point A to point B, dinghy cupside, I thought that I was going to die, God spared my life. Some of you have big moment stories like that. The Apostle Paul did, Martin Luther did. Uh, there are people throughout history that have had big moment shakeups, and yet there are other people, myself, Matthew, who wrote this, where God just, in a quiet voice, spoke to them. They didn't have those great big shakeups, and I'm glad to say that God works with different people in different ways. For some people, it's that massive earth-shaking moment, and for others, it's just the slow turning of a page as your eyes are open to the goodness of God. In whatever way it is that God's working in your life, could I encourage you, keep your ears open, keep your eyes open, look for Him to be doing a work in your life. This royal genealogy that we saw last week in chapter 1, Jesus, named by an angel, born of a virgin. Those all seem like big things. But I want to tell you, they all happened in obscurity. They were quiet. I might say it like this, strength hidden in weakness. And that's what I want to focus on today in our passage in Matthew chapter 2. The strength of our Savior hidden in what some might consider weakness. As we come into Matthew chapter 2, perhaps two years have passed. Jesus is no longer in a manger. He's now in a house. You'll see that in the passage today. As far as the scriptures are silent, there has been no more indication of anything that might point us to think that this baby Jesus is the Christ. If you put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes, there was that night of his birth where he had no space in the inn. He's been born in obscurity in a manger. Some would say in a cave outside of Bethlehem. There at the place where the animals eat. And really the only indication to Mary and Joseph that this child is different is the fact that yes, an angel appeared. Yes, a virgin gave birth to a son. And yes, shepherds came and worshipped him. But the Bible says in the book of Luke that Mary pondered these things in her heart. I can just wonder what that was like for the next two years as there was no indication. Nothing else is going on. They're just raising a toddler. And quietness. They're still in Bethlehem. They've just moved out of the cave and they've moved into a house. And as I look at these verses, I outline them in four segments. I'll start with the first one. And this is in verses 1 to 3. Herod's strength is going to be questioned. And I, I will say this, Herod is a very strong man. Let's read it in chapter 2 and verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. There is much packed into that one sentence. And so I'll just do my best to quickly unpack it for us. You'll notice the first phrase, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that's no small thing. It's fulfillment of the prophecy, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And over the last couple of weeks, we've focused on those prophecies. Micah 5 and verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler of Judah, ruler of Israel, from whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This is not just any king that will be born out of you, Bethlehem. You little town of Bethlehem, you are small among the thousands of towns in Judea, but from you will be born a ruler, a ruler that will go forth to rule from everlasting. And that is pointing at the Messiah. This prophecy is being fulfilled here, and it's pointed at in Matthew chapter 2. And if you'll remember just a few weeks ago, we said only Scripture will let us know when prophecy has been fulfilled. And here it is in Matthew 2 saying, this is that. 
the prophecy has been fulfilled. He, God had called this 700 years before. Matthew does his best to develop this throughout his book. 53 quotations from the Old Testament, five of them in these first two chapters. And, and Matthew's doing his best to let us know God's at work even though it seems to be quiet. And when God works, He works sometimes quiet, sometimes loud, but He always works faithfully and He always fulfills His promises. Notice also in this verse, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. This is significant because Matthew's setting up an argument throughout his book that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And yet, Jesus is born, it says here in verse number 1, it says that he was born when Herod was the king. At this point, historically, Herod had been king of the Jews under the Roman rule for about 35 years. All of this is well documented throughout history. You can go and read about this. I might just toss an idea. You can go to Wikipedia and you can see all of its outlined, his historical references. Herod had a problem with holding on to power. You might know this phrase, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. That phrase is Herod to a T. The, the man was given power. He was called the king of Judea or the king of the Jews. And he did everything within his ability to hold on to that power. I'll give you a couple of examples from history. Ten years into his rule, he had his second wife executed for treason. He had a feeling... There was no evidence. He had a feeling that perhaps she might be trying to undermine his rule, so he had her executed. And then another 20 years later, in the second trial, because the first trial he couldn't present enough evidence, in the second trial he had two of his sons executed because he was afraid that they were trying to take the kingdom from him. His own sons. And then three years later... Another son had him executed. We're talking about a man that is just hungry for power, that in his 35 years reign, and by the way, third son killed within five years before Jesus is born, he's now executed three sons and a wife because he's afraid that his own family is going to try to take the power from him. Then we have here in chapter 2 and verse 1, it's the Herod that is the king of Israel or king of the Jews at this point. He's 68 years old and he's been accused by many people at this point of being absolutely crazy. And if you're the king, you don't want anybody calling you crazy. Listen, I don't want anybody calling me crazy. Please don't say I'm long, long. It's one of my worst fears and greatest nightmares is that someone would say that I'm long, long or perhaps that I am long, long and I don't even know it. That's one of my worst fears. But here's King Herod sitting on the throne, having sat there for 35 years, killed off family members so that he can hold on to the power. And by the way, he's sick at this point. He's sick with the illness that will ultimately kill him. And he's crazy holding on to power. He's built, in his 35 years, he has built massive building projects. Building projects that Israel had not seen for hundreds of years. He has taken the Temple Mount and doubled the footprint of it. He has done massive underwater concrete structures to be able to support seaports. These were things that were just recent technology in his day, and he built out palaces that exist to this day. The man was putting out all sorts of power, exuding power and showing people, I'm the king, I'm the one that's in charge. Oh, and on top of this, he has to have Caesar's authority in order for him to rule. So Caesar in Rome has to be the one that gives him the stamp of approval. And we talked a little bit about this last week with Matthew being the tax collector. It's up to Herod to make sure that those taxes come in. And it's under Herod's name that he sends those taxes to Rome. So as long as Judah is sending taxes, Caesar's happy, Herod looks good. 
and into his throne room walks some people asking a question, where is born the king of the Jews? That's a terrifying question for him. You, you don't ask the man who has killed his own family members about the new king being born. This is a terrifying thought. He has been working for the last 35 years to establish one thought, and that is that he himself is the king of the Jews. See the question in verse 2. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. That's a problem. When you've spent money that you don't have to build buildings that will take longer than your lifetime, and you've killed off your own children so that you can grasp and hold on to power, when somebody walks into your throne room and asks questions like, where is the king of the Jews? You look back at them and say, I am the king of the Jews. They've questioned his authority. This is a terrifying moment for him. And watch verse 3 in the words of verse 3 and the gravity with which they come. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. You better believe he was troubled. And not only was he troubled, see the rest of the words there, verse 3, and all Jerusalem with him. When your king is crazy and kills people for these kinds of questions, you're going to be troubled as well. Nobody in Jerusalem at this point has been paying attention. I think that at this moment, historically, everybody that should have been paying attention to what was going on, I think they've just kind of been nodding off. And the royalty of the day, the king had no idea what was coming. The chief priests and the scribes, they had the scriptures. They had no idea what was coming. They'd not been paying attention. And in walks some wise men to ask where is born the king of the Jews? Because we've seen his star. I kind of feel like perhaps one of the newspapers should have picked up on the fact that there was a star overhead that was new. And I think if I'm Herod, as crazy as he is, I can't help but wonder if he didn't look around the room and go, excuse me. You think somebody could have pointed out that there was a new star up there? Do you think that somebody could have just been paying attention a little bit? And yet they've all been nodding off. And that brings us to the second section I see, verses 4 to 6, as the chief priests bow. This is verse 4. When he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Tell me, tell me, where is he to be born? And they don't even bat an eye. Look at verse 5. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it was written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, out art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Did you see that? Those chief priests, they didn't even slow down and say, Okay, well, Herod, hang on a second. We'll go get the scrolls and we'll see if we can study for a little while. They just went straight to the answer. His question where is this king going to be born? And they just responded. Oh, Micah 5.2. <laughs> we know that passage. And it's not a surprise that the scribes would know it, for these are the men who, it's their job, their whole career has been writing in repetition the Word of God. They write the Scriptures over and over. They know the Scriptures. They have this memorized. This is a part of their livelihood. So when Herod says, where's the king of the Jews going to be born? Oh, they already know the answer. Micah 5.2 said that in Bethlehem he'll be born. And for those of us that live here in Port Moresby, we don't really have a geographical mindset of where is Bethlehem, where is Jerusalem. But, but I'll go ahead and break it for you. They're 10 kilometers apart. From Herod's palace to Bethlehem's manger is 10 kilometers. And perhaps that doesn't mean anything to you. I'm close to straight. Example. Arima to Coney. If you got up in the morning and you walked, you said, I'm going to walk from the airport down to police headquarters. I know that every one of us just went, oh, just grab a taxi, get on a bus, it's much easier. But if you walked that, 
10 kilometers. The average human being walks 5 kilometers per hour. So just by doing normal math, you could walk from the airport to Konidobu in two hours. And for a people who everything is walking, that's close. And these are the chief priests and scribes. They could have jumped on a horse or a wagon and gotten there faster and easier. I mean, this is the moment, the prophetic moment that they've been waiting for for centuries. And I have for years wondered why didn't the Pharisees and the scribes just get in the wagon and go down and see the baby? Why didn't they do that? And this year, as I pondered on, or this week, as I pondered on this text, I think I figured it out. I think I figured out why they didn't, because Herod was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. And so where you would want to finish the statement of point number two, the chief priests bowed like the shepherds bowed, and like verse 11, the wise men will bow. Oh, the chief priests bowed, but they bowed to the wrong king. They bowed out of fear, perhaps, to Herod. It brings us into the third section, verses 7 and 8 as Herod grasps to continue his power. Verse 7, Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, quietly called them to himself. He inquired of them diligently what, the, what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him. Also, here's Herod. He's drilling down on this. I want the details. Tell me about when did the star appear. And it appears from the rest of the chapter, it appears that it's been about two years that that star has been in the sky. And if these wise men, I'll talk about the wise men more in a moment, but if these wise men came from as far as India, it's very possible that they came that distance. That would have taken them at least 90 days to walk. These guys did not come overnight and appear in Jerusalem. These guys have been on their way for a while. And it takes a while to study the stars, and these men have been studying the stars for the majority of their lives. It's what they do. And Herod calls them in, hey, I want to know privately, quietly, let me know. For this crazy king has some plans, but he's got to be careful with how he gets the information. And so privately, come and tell me, when did you find out about the star? Go, and he said in verse 8, go and search diligently, and when you found him, bring me word again. Can, can you just see this deranged, crazy old man sitting on the throne doing everything he can to hold on to his power? You see, kings listen to the magi. That's the word that's used here. We, we've translated it as wise men. The, the word is magi, and perhaps you're familiar with it, M-A-G-I. It's the very same word, magi, it's the very same word, the root word that you and I would see in the word magician. These guys have been around for a very long time. They're Persians, uh, most likely Medes and Persians. The, the, that would be modern-day Iran and going into Pakistan, maybe even into India. These are men that for, for millennia have been looked up to by the kings. Perhaps one of the most famous ones would have been in the book of Daniel. Do you remember Daniel? In the book of Daniel, Daniel uh, was serving Nebuchadnezzar the king. He'd been trained. He was taken as a, Daniel was taken as a young man, taken to Babylon. And there in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Remember that? And when he had a dream, do you remember what he did? He called to himself the magicians. Another word was soothsayers. These were the wise men that served the king. There was always a shift of power between the two of them. The king had the authority to kill them. And you might remember, even all the way back to Pharaoh's day, Remember Pharaoh had his dream in Egypt, he's the king, and he needs somebody to interpret the dream, and what's he do? He calls the magicians in. I need to know what's going on. These guys are kingmakers, 
But there's always a power struggle between them. The king can put them to death, but they can foresee what's to come. And so the king's going to be slow to put them to death. And I think that what's going on in this day is the magi, the magicians, the wise men arrive in Jerusalem with a question. We've been studying the stars, and we notice there's a new star, and it points to Jerusalem. We think there's a king that's been born here, the king of the Jews. Can you point us to him? And if you're the average person on the street in Jerusalem, you point the wise men to the house of the king. That's where you need to go. The wise men walk into Herod's palace. Herod the king would recognize these magicians, the kingmakers. He recognizes them, and he carefully works his way. I want you to go find that king. Let me know. You and I know the remainder of that story is how it flows out in chapter 2. Herod has no desire to worship Jesus, the baby king. He has no desire. Instead, he wants to put him to death. And in the remaining part of chapter 2 that we won't look at today, he sends his soldiers down into Bethlehem and has every child under the age of two put to death. The words of verse number 18 was a prophecy fulfilled from Jeremiah in Ramah. Was there a voice heard, lamentation, weeping, great mourning? Rachel, weeping for her children, would not be comforted. I can only imagine the heartache that flowed out of Bethlehem in those days. All because of a crazy king who's grasping for power. Brings us into the fourth section, verses 9 down to verse 11. We'll see here the Savior's strength masked in weakness. Verse number 9. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which, was, which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. I think this is amazing, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. All right, these, these wise, wise men, they, they come out of the palace. They really don't know. They've not put the pieces together. Later in the passage, the Lord appears to them, tells them, don't go back. That, verses 12, that's outside of our passage for today. They don't know that. All they know is we're leaving the palace. We're headed out to go find the king. We've been given a town, Bethlehem. We don't really know where this house is going to be. We don't know which house it's going to be, but we're going to head that direction. And when they leave from the palace, they come out, and what do they see? In verse 10, they saw the star. I don't know what is this exactly, how it played out. I can't help but wonder. Did, a star, did the star lead them to Jerusalem, and maybe when they got to Jerusalem, did the star disappear? Because then they come out, and then they see a star that leads them. And, and I don't know what that's like. Was there a star, as they came from the east, was there a star that led them in general to Jerusalem, and then an another star? Or did that star move and get closer and, and kind of go, here's where you're supposed to go? I don't know what it was like. But as they came out, I can't help but wonder, you see it in verse 10, they saw the star and they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And if you're sitting here listening to me talk about God's working in the quietness and in the weakness, perhaps you're thinking, hey, there's the strength. Look, it's the star. But I submit to you that God working in a star is God working in silence. Because every one of us does this. We go outside, spend enough time outside at 1 p.m. in the sun, and you will complain about the sun. I've even woken up in the middle of the night and had the moon, a bright moon coming through the window, and it's like, I've even complained about the brightness of the moon. 
But never once in my lifetime have I ever complained about a star being too bright. I would say that of all of the heavenly beings, a star would be seen as the weakest. And yet that's from our human perspective. As I think of stars from God's perspective, oh, I think that stars are one of the greatest displays of God's strength as He displays His strength to what, uh, what we would think is His weakness. My pastor used to say it like this when I was growing up. He said it like this. He said that God made the stars almost as if it was an afterthought. For when you see the creation story in the book of Genesis, it says, and he made the stars also. It's almost as if as an afterthought, and my pastor would say it like this, God, almost as if an afterthought, God just went here, I'll splash some stars over there too. And if you study the stars, oh my goodness, the amazing distances between them and how bright they are. Scientists tell us that our sun is a star and that it's a small star. For that, I'm thankful. I would hate for our sun to be any bigger because, my goodness, at 1 p.m., it's hot. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. Scientists say that the, the next nearest star is actually two stars, Alpha Centauri A and Alpha Centauri B. They're so close together that with the naked eye, it just looks like one star. And they say that it's 4.2 light years away. I'll explain light years real quick. So light years in science is because the numbers are so big, they can't give them. Like, it would just blow your mind. One times 10 to the 27th power. We don't count that way. So what is that? It has to do with how fast light travels. So light travels at 186,000 miles per second. That's roughly 300,000 kilometers per second. So when we say, Manya, I'm speed, I'm giving 60. That's 60 kilometers per hour. Not 60 kilometers per second. We're talking about 300,000 kilometers per second. Light, yeah, I'm sorry, give him 60. 300,000 kilometers per second so that when you have the sun's light and rays reach us here on earth, if you've been through ninth grade science, you understand that it has been traveling for eight minutes and 20 seconds before it got here. In other words, you could turn the sun off and we wouldn't know it for almost eight and a half minutes. That's a long time. And so how far does light travel? We say eight and a half minutes for it to come from the sun to the earth. Well, take that all the way to one year, and scientists call that a light year. That's the distance, one light year. And for the light to reach from Alpha Centauri A and B to us is four years, point two. Was that a couple of months or so? Can you imagine the distance? That's the next star. And then beyond that, and then beyond that, and some of the stars, he created them, and he splashed them out in their far distances, and some of them are hundreds and thousands of light years away. Several years ago, scientists made the Hubble telescope. I think that this is just an amazing display of God's greatness and his bigness. The Hubble telescope is a telescope that is like no other. For thousands of years, men have been studying the stars and making telescopes so that we can see them better. The Hubble telescope was sent to space. They put it on a rocket, sent it out to space. It's in space now. And there was a spot in the sky that the scientists wanted to study. That one spot, they say, it was a black spot, and they wanted to know, is there anything there? And so they pointed the Hubble telescope at the black spot from Earth. That black spot in the sky is the size of a grain of sand on your finger at arm's length. They pointed the Hubble telescope that direction. And you know, when you want to take a picture at night, you need to open the exposure. And so they opened the exposure on the Hubble telescope to take one picture that 
camera was open for 55 hours. They took the picture. I've got the picture here. I want you to see when they opened up that picture, it was, they count 10,000 galaxies. Unbelievable as God just went. I made the stars also. And he masks his strength in weakness. Friend, even that which we look at Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem, and we see shepherds come and bow, and for two years nobody comes around and says anything. Mary ponders in her heart, is this a real thing? And then some wise men show up, having journeyed for months to get to the king's palace, And the king, in his grasp for power, having killed people and built buildings and sent money that he can't afford so that he can hold on to the power, and God's just quietly bringing up the Son of God in Bethlehem. I love this verse from 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. Do you understand what God's doing? God uses little things to make those wise men who think that they're so smart, He takes those little things and He turns men on their head. And then He continues on in verse 28. The base things, the lowly things of the world, and the things which are despised has God chosen. Yea, and things which are not in O.T., Things that have little worth to bring to naught, to bring to nothing things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Oh friend, be careful about ever elevating your mindset to where you will think, oh, I've got this life figured out. I'll rule my life the way I want to, for it is in the hand of God that He turns the hearts of kings whithersoever He wills. He's in control. And He's sometimes showing what we consider to be weakness, but actually it's His strength. Look at verse 11 with me. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, They fell down. They worshipped Him. When they'd opened their treasures, they presented unto Him gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I can't help but wonder what those men, wise men, thought when they found in a house the King of the Jews. For months they've been traveling. They must have been expecting when we get there, there's going to be a palace, and there's going to be worshipers, and there's going to be other people, and we'll come along with our gifts. And they get there, and there's no fanfare. Strength, masked in weakness. And the rest of the chapter reads on with similar tones. Herod threatened by a baby grasping for power, killing children. Jesus whisked away with Joseph and Mary to Egypt to save his life. And I might just say that the rest of the life of Jesus is much like this. Almighty creative power masked in weakness. I'll show you some of the prophecies. You can see in chapter 1 and verse 22, this is power, true power. Verse 22, how do you fulfill a prophecy? It was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Again, in chapter 2 and verse 5, they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this it was written by the prophet. In chapter 2 and verse 15, they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. In verse 17, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. And down in verse 23, and came and dwelt in the city of Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. Do you see this quiet, 
fulfillment to prophecy over and over. As Matthew goes, hey, you might see him and think that he's weak, but actually he is the creative, almighty Son of God who is in control of all things. Five prophecies, one after another, as he limits himself. I just imagine him limiting himself in the manger. He had to have his nappy changed. The one who spoke the worlds into existence, the one who said, let there be light, laid there in a manger, in a nappy. Have you ever had this happen? It happens to me a lot. As I'm talking with someone, let's say I'm talking to person A. And while we're talking and carrying on a conversation, I just happened to overhear conversation B to C. Have you ever done that? And as I'm talking, I hear B going on to C, but I hear B saying something that's not true to C. And it bothers me. Have you ever had that happen? And I almost want to say, excuse me, A, I need to go correct what B is saying. You're not supposed to do that. But could you imagine being Jesus, who knows all things, limiting himself with language as a babe? I have a feeling that in the very moment, as the Magi bowed the knee to him, not fully understanding what all was to come from this, the King of kings and Lord of lords, as they might have said things that would have been true, but perhaps would have been half-truth because they don't know the full picture, as he is the babe, limited himself. As he listened to them say things like, this one is going to be a king, and he'll rule over this city. And they probably tapped Mary on the shoulder, and Mary, don't you understand? As Jesus laid there and thought, you guys haven't got the first clue. He limited himself. And maybe, perhaps, even as old as two years old, living in this house, maybe even as old as two years old, I can't help but wonder, as he kind of waddled outside into the yard, as little kids do, maybe as the sun is setting and the stars are rising and he's wanting to go, hmm, that one... Nobody's paying attention to that one. That one's important. And he's limiting himself. Strength and weakness. And he did it over and over all throughout his life. As a 12-year-old boy talking with a chief priest. And he just let slip some questions that are going to blow their mind. He's walking on the way to Jairus' house. And a lady comes up through the crowd and reaches out and touches his garment. And in a no-look miracle, he healed her. Just displays of his greatness and his strength in weakness. He was there at a wedding feast and they'd run out of wine. <laughs> he looks at the guys and he <laughs> pour the water in there. He knows everything that he's going to do. Displaying his strength in weakness. And on that day as he rode the donkey into Jerusalem and as many as 250,000 people cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. Maybe you don't remember what he was doing. He was weeping. And on the cross he laid down his life. His words... No man takes my life from me. I will lay it down. And I will take it up again. Uh, there has never been such a great display of strength. So all of his life, a display of weakness, he was gentle, he was meek, he was lowly, coming to us, giving himself, but then when he had accomplished everything that he had been set forth to do, went to the cross, paid for our sins, and rose in victory. Oh, friend, that was power on display. Try raising yourself from the dead. No, wait, don't try that. Oh, friend, he is powerful. And as he went to the cross, he opened not his mouth. As a lamb before her shearers is dumb, he went and he rose in power. Come with me to Hebrews chapter 2 and we'll finish there. 
Hebrews chapter 2. And I want you to see verse 9, 14, and 15. Demonstrating the weakness of a babe, the method through which God chose to show off His power. You see, the Lord Jesus did not simply come for Christmas. He didn't come so that we can celebrate and give gifts and talk about how wonderful it is to have a babe in a manger. For those are true things, but there was a greater purpose, and that purpose was for Him to go to the cross. The Lord Jesus came born of a virgin, born in a manger, lived a sinless, perfect life, and then... At the plan of the Father, it was no mistake for him to go to the cross. We developed that at another time, but Isaiah said that it was with his stripes that we're healed. He went to the cross, and he took upon himself the sin of the world, so that you and I, sinful people, could be made right with God simply by putting our trust in him. You might know the verse, John 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, our sin is what separates us from God, but the Lord Jesus took our sin on the cross so that we could be made right with Him. If you've been around for any length of time, you know my favorite verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The greatest exchange that could ever happen, Jesus taking my sin on the cross so that I could be made right with God. Look with me now at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 as we close. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Let those words sink in this morning. Jesus, made lower than the angels. So if there's a hierarchy in all things cosmic, you have God and then the angels and then man. And so Jesus, the Son of God, was made lower than the angels. That makes him a man. Jesus became a man. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And what do we see him? How do we see him? Crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. I might reword it this way. Why did Jesus take on flesh? Why did he become a man? It was not so that we could commemorate what a good man he was. And oh, he was a good man. But he took on flesh. He became a man so that he could taste death. God cannot die. It's impossible. So God became man so that he could die for us. Do you see the words there at the end of verse 9? That he, for the reason, what reason did he become lower than the angels? That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. It's for every one of us, friends, that he tasted death. It was for us because we could not take that death ourselves. The wages of sin is death. He tasted that death in our place. So now look at verse 14. For as much then as the children, that's us, are partakers of flesh and blood. Literally, we, human beings, are made up of flesh and blood. We have human bodies. For as much as we are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He also became human being. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. In other words, Jesus, God the Son, became a man so that he could defeat Satan. We might say through an inside job. He became a man so that he could defeat Satan. How? By going to the worst that Satan could offer. What's the worst thing that can ever happen to you? You die. That's the worst thing. The, might say, one of the biggest moments of your life. In one of those biggest moments of your life, in death, 
The one thing that you and I fear, Jesus took on as a baby, took on flesh so that he could taste death by going into death for us, and in going into death, he would defeat Satan. And not only defeat Satan, look at verse 14, and deliver them, that's us, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So if we're honest this morning, none of us is looking forward to death. We've been afraid of it. And I think you can boil down every one of our fears to that. If you're afraid of heights, it's because you're afraid of falling and what happens at the end of the fall. If you're afraid of the dark, you're afraid of what you don't see in the dark and what might get you and what will happen because that thing gets you. Name it. Whatever your fear is at its base and at its core is the fear of death. So Jesus went to earth, born in a manger, became a man so that he could taste death and in tasting death, He could defeat Satan and remove from all of us the fear of death. For it is in his life and in his resurrection that you and I have hope. If he rose from the dead, you and I who have believed on him will also raise from the dead. The day will come, friend, if you're a believer, you die, you close your eyes in death, you will be but asleep in him. For the day will come when he will rise us from the dead, and we shall ever be with the Lord. These are comforting words. These are exciting words that we can look forward to. And in the meantime, he has removed the fear of death. For if you understand that he has taken our place, then you will understand that I don't have to fear death. It's not the end. It's but the door through which I walk to be with Jesus forever And history tells us that there is a 100% chance that if things keep going the way they've been going, everybody that you know will also walk through that door if they've put their trust in Jesus. And so may I encourage us this morning, brothers and sisters, His life masked in weakness, but His resurrection, an awesome display of power, one that you and I can partake in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness that you've shown upon our lives. This morning as we celebrate Christmas, we thank you that the Son of God became the Son of Man. Strength displayed in weakness, born so that he could die, and because of his death, he could bring all men to glory. Thank you for Christmas. Father, we thank you for our brothers and sisters that have assembled this morning. Encourage one another, worship you together. The blessing it's been to be together this morning. And Lord, I pray that we would not walk into the rest of our week without putting our trust in the Lord Jesus. And so Lord, I want to thank you for your goodness upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, thank you for being here this morning.